This is Circumcessions. Thank you for joining us on the show today, where I am being joined by a good friend and former mentor of mine in Sick Kids in Toronto, Professor Martin Coyle, as we try and delve into some of the introductory aspects of quality improvement. Marty has completed a master's in quality improvement and patient safety at the University of Toronto. During an academic career of more than 30 years, Marty has been known for a number of innovations and contributions, as well as his leadership and quality improvement and patient safety profiles. Good morning, Marty. Thanks a million for coming on the show today. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit was um, your role in quality improvement and leadership, and it's, it's a role you've held for quite some time. Just to start off, though, what is QI for the uninitiated? So it's funny, Fardad. Um, growing up, I was a Green Bay Packer fan in, in football. And for those of us outside the United States, American football and the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s was the ultimate success story. A small town uh, with a, a very motivating, great coach, and his name was Vince Lombardi. And a lot of the terms he used and uh, quotations uh, have been earmarked and repeated uh, through multiple generations now because they're, they're so true. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that he stated was, we, and I'm paraphrasing, is that we can't always achieve perfection. Yeah. But if we strive for, uh, for perfection, we can at least hope for excellence. And yeah. I believe that in medicine, that's exactly what we do, mm-hmm. is we're never gonna be perfect, yeah. but we can always be better. And I look at things that we've done over the years, for instance, when I finished medical school, mm-hmm. I didn't know what a urologist was. But a urologist, when I entered urology, was almost always a generalist. Yeah. And the whole concept of subspecializing and getting better to optimize outcomes and to know more about a certain disease really took over the field as it has in many aspects of surgery. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what we do, we're always innovating, we're always changing. We have to be proactive and change with the times. And that's what quality is all about. It's attaining something that's not the status quo. It's looking for something that fits into an equation that Michael Porter coined of value, where quality is divided by the cost. And quality can be looked at in many ways. It could be patient satisfaction. It could be the outcomes, our surgical outcomes. It's not always one metric that we're looking at. And value may be different for us, too. What's our quality of life, especially today when we look at the external uh, influences that that impact our practices, whether it be management uh, from above, whether it be external uh, environmental things that we didn't expect, such as COVID even. So we have to look at our own quality in the whole context as well. So quality isn't necessarily just a result anymore. It's a more global definition. So it sounds like it's 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 more a it's more a process and it's more a journey as you're kind of going through this and constantly striving to improve things, which uh, is is reasonably obvious. But how did you get into it? I mean, was it something that you just were you just kind of 
frustrated at times while you were working or was it because you had attended a conference and saw this or was it just because your peers were doing this and you felt this was important because it's still not it's it's not as commonplace we like to think it is well it's funny i think that surgeons actually have been leaders in qi and haven't realized it for instance if you use a different suture in your hypospadias repairs and like it better mm-hmm. or you do something that doesn't impact the outcome, but you make the the process more efficient, mm-hmm. that's quality. You're mm-hmm. changing something. It may be, not be something that you write a paper about, yeah. but the reality is you may impact uh, uh, others around you, and it may impact your patients who you're treating. So again, getting back to value, it becomes paramount in that equation. So how did I become involved? Because I've always been someone who asks the word, why? Why do I do this? Am I doing this the best way I can? Is there something I can do to achieve a better outcome, or at least the identical outcome, but do it in a different way? So I look at certain things that um, I embraced early in my career. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, for instance, uh, the Bianchi orchid epoxy. I thought I had invented that technique of doing it scrotally and I called my friend Tony Caldamone and mm-hmm. said Tony what do you think about this and he said oh that's the Bianchi repair mm-hmm. and I said who's Bianchi and what's the Bianchi repair so I realized I wasn't necessarily innovative myself I thought I had come up with a new concept but it was something that worked for me cut down a lot of steps and yet at the same time my patients recovered more quickly I had a bad outcome with a patient uh, um, with regards to uh, overdose on narcotics and I asked myself why am I giving narcotics well the culture that I was trained in was you give narcotics to everybody and I asked why and how long ago was this this was uh, 30 years ago yeah so so I've tried to find better ways Mm -hmm. to deal with pain uh, I look at things that, again, during my training, when we did ureteral re-implants, yeah. patients spent five to seven days in the hospital. They had a Penrose drain. They had a Foley catheter for five days. Parents were only allowed to visit them for two one-hour periods during the day. They were prisoners. We were, we were treating them miserably and, mm-hmm. again, giving them narcotics around the clock. They were getting constipated and coming back two, three weeks later uh, with their bowels full. And so, again, we asked ourselves, how can we improve the journey? Mm -hmm. We didn't change the operation. We still do re-implants the way we were taught. But do we use a Penrose? Mm -hmm. Do we leave a Foley in for five days? Those are all quality improvement measures by saying, how can we have a good or better outcome because mm-hmm. it is a better outcome if patients aren't coming back to the emergency room. It is a better outcome if they don't have the discomfort of having a catheter in for five days mm-hmm. and if you're reducing the rate of potential catheter-associated urinary tract infections. Mm-hmm. It is a benefit to the patient if we're reducing the amount of narcotics and they're not coming back with constipation. And just to just to reiterate, I guess this is not something that you were doing in a vacuum back then, but this was what was being done in general by, by most by most groups. And the other thing, I suppose, as well as the the other way you can define value is not only an increase of outcomes, but if you can have the same outcomes for decreased costs, then that's that's also an important measure Absolutely. as well. What's your reaction, and I don't want to get too controversial here, but what's your reaction to people 
feeling that QI research is not, and and I'm doing inverted commas here in the air, but real research where they feel it's just it's more just an audit procedure as opposed to doing research. But you know, I, I know the the current data would refute that greatly. But what are your own views on this? Well, quality improvement. The nice thing about it is it's baby steps rather than making a giant investment and saying we're going to test this hypothesis uh, and take it to the lab or take it to a large group of patients mm -hmm. that requires a lot of money. What, what quality improvement often is, is saying, gee, I wonder if this works, mm -hmm. testing an idea with a small number of patients and trying to address the issues that may or may not change, but continue to revisit what your hypothesis or your aim was and say, did I achieve this or can I change my aim? Do, did I fail? Why put a big investment into something without good data to support it? So again, QI research can ramp itself up. The stakeholders aren't necessarily only your peers mm -hmm. or the people who are reading the, the Journal of Pediatric Urology. Yeah. Your peers are the nurses, your peers are people around you, your yeah. pre, uh, it's administration, it's all sorts of things. And you brought up the issue of laggards. Uh, in the 1960s, Everett Rogers came up with the concept of diffusion of innovation, mm -hmm. and, which is a bell-shaped or a sigma curve, depending on how you look at it, mm -hmm. where essentially the middle of the curve, or the, uh, the part of the bell shape, uh, is related to the majority. And the majority represents 67% yeah. of, of, of people within your culture uh, when you're looking at a new change idea. If you look at to the far left of the curve, mm -hmm. at the bottom are people who uh, are the innovators, mm -hmm. okay, and the people who are early adopters. Early adopters are people who tend to jump on the bandwagon for everything and, and try it. And they're not necessarily believable as a result. So the real key is to influence that 67% yeah. who fall into e equally into the early majority and the late majority because mm -hmm. that's the steepest rise of the curve or the majority within the bell shape if you're looking at a bell shape curve. Yep. The extreme on the far right of the curve or the top of the sigma curve is are the laggards. And the laggards are the ones who are say are naysayers. They're fixed in their culture. They're they're unlikely to change until they're forced to. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be that 10 to 15%. Oh, I trained here. This is the way we do it. I'm never going to change. But you look at something, for instance, laparoscopic cholecystectomy. At the beginning, there were a lot of mistakes. A lot of people hurt. Okay, yep. Was that because the early ad uh, adopters just jumped on the bandwagon and did it poorly? Mm -hmm. As people became better at it and more experienced, all of a sudden it took off. What happened to those general surgeons who ultimately said, I'm, I'm only going to do open cholecystectomies? They became dinosaurs. Yeah. So, I mean, so it almost seems like it, you can perpetuate this culture in a large department just as easily as you can do it yourself by by bringing on the the early and late majority into this because eventually people will follow and those that won't follow will just be left behind if it's been shown to be to be a decent thing well but but I think there's also the issue of experience yeah and it's very hard if you're uh, somebody uh, gray hair 
<laughs> who has been doing it for quite a while and you've had good results doing something. Yeah. How do you tell that person you've been doing it wrong for 20 years or 15 years mm -hmm. or that there's a better way of doing it? It's very hard to influence that person. Yeah. Equally, though, I've, I've had fellows and, and residents who just mm -hmm. said, look, this is the way I was trained, yeah. and I don't like the way you do it. That's fine, mm -hmm. as long as they see the way I do it, and so that they're, uh, they have experience with a different technique and realize that thinking out of the box is not a bad idea, doing things a little bit differently, even if it's a baby step, may allow them ultimately to be more comfortable with with the way they do things and to say gee you know maybe I'll tweak this because the word we can train anybody to do an operation okay is there a white right way to do it is my way better than your way I don't know but a good trainee will say gee you do it this way he did it that way I'm gonna take a little sprinkle of this a little sprinkle of that I saw somebody else do it this way yeah and ultimately you develop your own way of doing things which was one of the, the real proponents for actually going off and doing a fellowship in, in different centers because you do get exposed to different people and different techniques and I and, and the other thing I suppose as well is if you are someone who doesn't decide or doesn't decide to go with that curve that's no excuse for not trying to improve what you do all the time as well anyway. Well, so you know, you don't... It's funny that I look at our big meetings and uh, it's sad that we uh, have lost our SPU and ESPU meetings this year because it's not necessarily the papers and the data mm -hmm. that, that give us uh, new knowledge. We can read that in the literature because it's ultimately going to be published. The reality is I think a lot of what we learn and a lot of what influences us is what happens outside the lecture theater mm -hmm. and outside the journal. It's when people sit there and they have a cup of coffee and say, Absolutely. gee, I've been trying this, uh, let's do this. And there's a lot of brainstorming that occurs as a Absolutely. result. Absolutely. Um, I guess, how do you feel, I mean, you've been in a leadership position for well, I'm not going to say how long you've been in a leadership position, but let's say it's it, it's more than a couple of decades anyway. But how do you think how do you think leadership has changed over the last 20 years? I mean, do you, or has it changed even? It's frustrating to be quite honest with you because if you take a look at middle management, it continues to increase and increase and increase, and there's mm -hmm. more um, because of legislation, whether it's from governments, whether it's from insurance companies, whether it's your hospital, uh, whether it's your big physician group, uh, it could be the NHS, it could be the Canadian health care system, mm -hmm. uh, Kaiser in the United States, whatever, we're not very good at being told you have to do it this way, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. But at the same time, the only way to say, I have a better idea, is to... Um, expand on your late leadership capabilities yep. and leadership to me uh, I look at leadership and management very differently I look at management who's somebody who's told you need to take your flock to the end of the hall yeah a leader is someone who says gee my goal is to say you walk differently than that other person does and guess what there's a roadblock Mm -hmm. in the hallway. How am I going to get each one of you there mm -hmm. in a different way? So I think leaders need to be able to to deal with all the roadblocks that occur in a situation and to, in a, in a way, keep the stakeholders engaged 
so that the ultimate outcome is achieved. And physicians have lacked in leadership, sadly to say. Uh, a lot is due uh, because we, we've been very independent in our own ways. Yep. Um, we've, we've been very, um, we've been in microsystems where we've been in our own division or department mm -hmm. and haven't dealt with the external influences. Yep. At the end, what happens is when ultimately we get in a position where we're told what to do, it then becomes very uncomfortable. So the culture is imposed upon us yep. rather than us being part of the culture change. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel that we, in medicine in general, not just uh, pediatric urology or pediatric surgery, um, need to develop leadership skills. And one of my great um, feelings as a, as a chairman uh, of uh, pediatric urology division with with fellows has been not to develop surgeons. You mm -hmm. guys are coming here as surgeons already. Yeah. Yes, I want you to think out of the box. I want you to be creative. I want you to do things that are uncomfortable. But my goal has been to develop the leadership skills and qualities that you may have. And to be quite frank, I'm quite proud of the fact that uh, over the past 10 years uh, here in Toronto, that so many of the fellows have decided to either do masters or certificates in quality improvement and patient safety, mm -hmm. primarily looking at what you asked me before about quality improvement, <laughs> but prim but really to hone in on their leadership skills and and to d be able to to develop that to take leadership positions not necessarily as chief of a division, yeah. but with medical organizations within their practice group, whatever it turns out to be, mm -hmm. but to not be afraid and to understand how important it is uh, that, that to impact culture means opening your mouth and to garner support from those around you. Uh, and you kind of took the words out of my mouth actually there because I was gonna ask you about that. Um, and, and certainly leadership at least one aspect of leadership to me always seemed to be to be able to allow the the trainees or staff or colleagues or whoever it is around you or under you uh, to become the best versions of themselves uh, as opposed to just letting them know what they need to do. Um, well, leadership is very diverse too. It is, I mean, you can read books about adaptive leadership, transformational mm -hmm. leadership. There's all sorts of definitions and and uh, best ways to be a leader. Yep. But I think, like you said, leadership skills are what you develop internally, okay? You need to read about the things, okay? The, you have to gain knowledge. Mm -hmm. And some people, yes, are natural leaders. So which, which kind of brings me back to what I was, I was going to ask you. I remember once as a senior resident, um, I once was giving a, a divisional, doing divisional teaching, and I spoke about... Uh, principles of leadership during this and one particular attending stood up and and said there's no point in doing this because you can't learn leadership you either have it or you don't uh, how do you feel about that I mean what, what would be your response to that well I, I've, I've read a lot that says everybody can be a leader and I don't believe that mm -hmm. okay I do uh, believe unfortunately if you look at humans throughout history is there's always been leaders and a lot of people are much more comfortable being followers. Mm -hmm. Does that not, but that doesn't mean that many people who are followers don't have potential leadership qualities. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they all should become leaders, mm -hmm. but it should uh, be in an environment where they feel safe yeah. 
to either impact their leader yep. or themselves to develop the, the, the skills that they have. So I don't believe that everybody can be uh, at least a good leader. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has some leadership qualities of, of some degree. So whether you're a father or a mother or whatever, those are mm -hmm. leadership qualities that you utilize in that part of your life. And I guess importantly as well is not everyone wants to be a leader either. Um, and and I guess bringing us on to our kind of last last question here. I mean, you've been doing this for so long, and you're you're so well known in in pediatric urology. I, I don't really know anyone who hasn't at least heard of you, if not met you. Um, but over the last 30, 40 years, you must, I suppose, have had some regrets as to as to how you might have done things differently as a leader or a manager. Um, are there, are there are there any things that come to mind that you think you know? If I was able to travel back in time twenty years, I would have, I would have shaped things slightly differently. Or I mean, it, it's a bit of a rhetorical question because most I think most of us would probably say yes, of course. But is there anything that comes to mind that that you you kind of feel that you just re regret the path that 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 you kind of went down as a division or as a department or, I mean, even in your own career? I wouldn't call them regrets, but I think. Um uh, every time you fall down, you have to learn to pick yourself up. It's, uh, uh, and I, I think that leadership, the most important skill that one has to learn, uh, two, two most important skills are one, to listen, mm -hmm. and especially to your stakeholders. They're more important than anybody, yep. and uh, you have to identify them properly. But the, also, the, the other key is the transparency and communication. So yep. that that makes your stakeholders safe if you're honest with them and know that they can come back to you. So if, if it's not a two-way street where they feel safe and you feel comfortable with them, yeah. it becomes dictatorial. And yeah. I'm not saying it's wrong. Uh, I guess I am saying it's wrong, but, but you know, I grew up in an era where the chair yeah. was a dictator. I mean, that was his or her job was to really say this is the way we do it. And was it expected of them as well? I don't know if it was, but that was the culture yep. and the system, and yep. I think that that's evolved o over time. Yep. Uh, and you know, we have to realize that my generation of baby boomers is very different than millennials in our expectations and our goals, and if we don't continuously revisit and understand how people think by listening and by c proper communication, rather than just telling people what to do, mm -hmm. you are a manager, not a leader, okay? You are getting the task done, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily getting it done by engaging the people uh, who you work with and who ultimately allow things to grow at a much more rapid pace if they're part of the solution. Let's see. Marty, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Really appreciate it, and uh, as, uh, as always, we'd love to have you back. I'll be back.